It was a surreal experience to make a horror film also stuck in a big hotel in the middle of a pandemic. But I think there's that fever dream energy just really, really coming into it. If you are a creative in the entertainment industry looking for inspiration and practical ideas about how to take the next steps in your career, you are in the right place. My name is Rebecca Doyle and I work in film and television in Los Angeles. I learned so much from the ups and downs of the talented, innovative people surrounding me and I want to share those insights with you. Join in every other week to hear the break-in stories of people who overcame challenges and found unconventional avenues to pursue their dream careers in an industry that has no set path. You'll recognize the work of today's guest on major streaming platforms, previous programs from the top film festivals, and if you live in Los Angeles, some billboards around town from this month of Halloween 2023. Katrina M. Kudlick is a producer and writer known for fixation, appendage, and spoonful of sugar. She is the founder of Fever Dream Studios and a graduate of the USC School of Cinematic Arts. Her work has screened at the industry's top film festivals, including Toronto International Film Festival, Fantastic Fest, South by Southwest, BFI London, and Fantasia Film Festival. In today's interview, we're getting into the challenges behind making appendage, from lightning strikes to special effects done practically to potential hauntings, why Katrina left her job as a producer in Disney's marketing department, and how to set yourself up for success when you need to be truly self-made. I've known Katrina for over 10 years, and she's someone who's consistently been a great example of leading and commanding a set while being kind. Katrina is an amazing example of someone who's resourceful and commitment to her passion paid off in various ways. So I can't wait for you to gain some inspiration from the success stories of her ambition. Let's jump into the interview. Katrina, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast and congratulations on Appendage. Yeah, thanks for having me. So as we record this, early October, Appendage just came out on Hulu a few days ago. This is going to be released mid-October. How has the reception been to the film? The reception has been really amazing. I This is my first film that I've done with Hulu. And so it's just been exciting to see, you know, I, I live in Los Angeles, so it's been exciting to see the, the billboards up um, for everything. And I, I keep getting texts from people from LAX uh, knowing about it and wanting to see it. And now that it's come out, it's just been great to see the reception get, that it's getting. It's a film all about mental health. So it's nice to see that people are connecting with it. Mm, and was this your first billboard and where can people in LA see them? I it was. I it, people can see it at the the Beverly Center or on Sunset um or at LAX apparently. <laughs> Very exciting. And what were these screenings like leading up to the release on Hulu seeing it on the big screen? What what were those experiences like? Yeah, so it premiered at uh, South By. So we had a screening months ago, uh, which was really, really exciting. It screened twice there. And the reception was really great. It's, you know, it's one thing to edit everything in, you know, a tiny dark room. It's another when you get to see it uh, surrounded by a crowd. And I tend to do a lot of genre work. And so people aren't normally you know, very loud necessarily during the screenings because something's very, very tense or it's a very serious subject matter. And this is a horror comedy. So it was really refreshing and nice to see people actually laughing at points uh, because you can really see how they're engaging in real time. And then we've had a few other screenings. Uh, It's also going to be at Sitches um, this weekend, actually. Uh, So that's really exciting up in Spain. And uh, yeah, it's just been nice to be able to see it on a big screen. I don't know. Do people watch movies on their phones now? Uh, I hope not. I I love seeing it on the big screen. So the feature version of this debuted at South By. Yes. But the film is also based on a short. Yes. That was at Sundance, correct? Yes, that's correct. So what was the journey like off of that project, getting the attention at Sundance, going to be developed into a feature? And at what point were you brought on board? Yeah, so I was brought on board after the the short was at Sundance, but it was actually done by a lot of USC alumni. And so I knew a lot of them and had worked with many of them before and was brought the project. Actually, 
it came together really, really quickly. So I was brought the project last May. Just May 2022. That's May 2022. And I, I just really connected with the material right away. And I thought that the director, Anna, it was really, really exciting. And I wanted to do something with her. Um, but the, the project, again, was also really, really fast. I know that they actually got greenlit for the feature version or essentially greenlit I, on the f- second day of shooting the short film. The executives there just knew that they really, really loved it. And they have a really unique program. It's through 20th Digital, which is now uh, Worthen Brooks. They've uh, renamed and they essentially find creators and they have a program through Hulu where they make these shorts for Huluween. And then some of those shorts end up getting turned into features. It's a really exciting opportunity for anyone who is uh, has maybe not made a feature before or is on their second or something like that and really um, giving them a voice. Mm, so who was the first person to identify this project? Was it someone at Sundance or was it someone at Hulu? So it was actually made with um, with Hulu before it even got to Sundance. Mm. They already knew about it. And then it, it just was one of the ones that was one of the highest performing ones, I believe. Mm. And so they, they picked it off of that. And who were the people that you already knew on that project that you were excited to work with again? So I, I already knew Jenna Cavell, who's one of the executive producers. I knew her from, I, I worked on a feature with her right out of um, college. And so we've known each other for a long time. And then, you know, I've already worked with the the DP, Paul Robinson. I'd already worked with Michelle Patterson, who's the production designer. And I knew of, I had met Arby, who's another one of the EPs at Sundance the year before. So I just kind of knew a lot of people. The, the director, I had seen one of her music videos. It had this, it was really, this really moody kind of piece of this guy in this black sludge in a bathtub. I truly can't tell you much more about it other than it caught my attention from many, many years ago. And as soon as I saw her name, I was like, that's the woman who made that really weird, amazing tub piece. And I want to see what else she's done. And so, and now she's, she's great. I loved working with her. Mm. So walk me through some of the challenges that you guys faced filming the movie because you went to North Carolina to film. Mm-hmm. Is this your first time shooting in North Carolina? It actually wasn't my first time shooting in North Carolina. It, I shot in Wilmington and I had actually the previous summer shot another thing uh, that was a partnership between Netflix and Adobe in Wilmington. And so it's actually my second time being in Wilmington. So I feel like I know that area really well. Uh, in terms of challenges, Again, it was a really short timeline and we were working with not a, not a gigantic budget and there's some very specific special effects work that we had to do in order to create the appendage. So there's some things that we really wanted to make sure we put enough financing and also time and energy into. So there's a little bit of a, a balancing act in terms of getting it all there and on screen, but everyone just did such a good job working on it. Um, we actually had to move up our shooting by two weeks because we we really wanted a certain actor to be Mm. in the project. And so everyone, I remember everyone getting together and saying, is this worth it? It wasn't even a thought for a second. We're just like, this is absolutely worth it. But everyone needed to move up their timeline by two weeks. So I was in Wilmington, I think probably six weeks after being brought on the project. And yeah, it was kind of, it was really fast from there. I think that other than that, the the biggest challenge was probably the weather in Wilmington. Uh, there was a lot of lightning strikes and lightning delays. And so our team got really, really good at working through that. And, you know, of course, whenever there's a lightning delay, you have to just stop filming, right? We like pull everything inside. No one can go out, listen to all of the safety protocols to make sure that we're okay. And we, we definitely had some interesting days where we were stuck there for, for so long and it had to become insurance claim and something that we dealt with later. But okay. So for the people in California, including myself, (laughs) who don't deal with lightning on that kind of scale, what is it about the lightning that's preventing you guys from shooting? Is it touching the ground or is it just a hazard to have outside shooting it's more for the equipment i mean it's definitely for the people and it could be in close proximity and we did have some of that but also we have generators and everything Mm. that's outside and so it shouldn't be running when electricity is running so these are so shooting exteriors exactly exactly so we can you know if everything is inside we can do it but you know 
as I'm sure you know too, it's very common that we have our lights outside. And of course, everyone's running ahead on something like this. Multiple people are wearing multiple hats. And so every time we're shooting something, everyone's preparing for the next thing or the thing from two days from now. And so it definitely paused us a lot. I I didn't even uh, delete the app until probably a few months ago. So every every once in a while, I'll just get lightning delay notifications for Wilmington, North Carolina. How many days did that add to the shooting schedule? Luckily, just one. We were really, really smart about it. And I give a lot of credit to our, you know, our our G&E team, especially just because after it happened the first time, we got really smart about setting ourselves up for success. So we would make sure if there's something that we really want, don't leave it on the grip truck. (laughs) Because we might, we might be stuck inside for a while and once we once we realized that it didn't hurt us as much Mm. so this is a horror film did you have any paranormal experiences on the set you know I love that you asked that uh because we did realize that so Wilmington North Carolina is a very popular shooting location and the house that we were shooting in or that rather the apartment complex has been used by multiple other horror films in the past. I believe one of them is The Conjuring, uh, but don't quote me on it. Um, But there are some stories that have gone around about whether that location is is haunted or or you know what have you and so it was definitely an interesting way to approach it and it's something that I think really added to the atmosphere of creating a a horror film in a in a really wild way and yeah there were there were definitely a few moments where you know for example we would play our sound backwards and or so we would play our sound and it'd be all like gurgly and things like that. So I don't know. I can't 100% say with, with certainty, but it it was a little bit wild. Mm. Okay. So suspected paranormal activity, but nothing confirmed. Nothing. I can't confirm that personally. Okay. Okay. So let's go on to some reviews for this film. I know you mentioned that this project was about mental health. Yeah. Did any reviewers receive that the way that you had hoped? Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, I was just texting with Anna, the director yesterday, and we both went to go send the same review to each other at the same time, Mm. just because I... You know, it's it's always nice to hear praise for the film from from critics. And we got we've definitely gotten quite a few that have made me really, really excited. But I also like to hear from just people that are watching the films that aren't critics. And so one one review in particular that we went went to send to each other was just all about this person who who watched the film and said that they, they were bipolar and they wish that they could watch the movie with their mom because they felt like maybe they would be more understood. And so while our film isn't directly about, uh, you know, being bipolar and the appendage is something that can be interpreted in many, many different ways in terms of what your individual struggle, journey, path is with your mental health, it was just really rewarding to see someone take it in that way mm. and feel like it was something that they felt a little bit more understood by. I, again, it's a horror film, but it's also a comedy. And so the the hope is that people can, can laugh with it too uh, and really connect with the, the message that's behind the film or behind, you know, the, the screaming appendage. <laughs> Definitely. And you mentioned there's a lot of USC alumni that worked on this project. Yes. You yourself are an alum of USC and they just hosted you there for a screening at the Zemeckis Center. What was that like getting to go back to your old stomping grounds with a film that you'd put your heart and soul into? It was so wild. I don't think I'd been in the Zemeckis Center since I took a (laughs) directing practicum. And I I definitely was walking past the class and thinking, these are the flats that we used. I don't even know how many years ago, eight, 10. We don't need to count because we were both there. But uh, but it, it was it was just really wild. And it was it was cool to see how many students showed up just because that's something that I really enjoyed doing when I was at USC. And it always was something where I wanted to see people that that came back and hear their, you know, their honest interpretations of what that is like and what their experience was. And so in walked a bunch of students with, you know, haircuts that are way cooler than I can possibly tell you. <laughs> um, I was getting inspo, but it was nice. And it was nice to hear their, their questions and be able to be there and hopefully say something that is a little bit a little bit helpful. <laughs> Did any of the questions either surprise you or also remind you of what your priorities and perceptions were of the industry at that time when we were students? 
Mm. I think, you know, so many of them were specifically about the film, but there was this one person that uh, <laughs> that I was like, how do I get to make that? <laughs> Which I thought was uh, was really, really fun and smart of them. And uh, they brought it up in a much more articulate way than that. I, and I appreciated that. I'm like, absolutely. Bring it up. Ask for what you what you want, but have the, you know, have the projects to back it up immediately because mm. it's always what you were told in school. Definitely. Okay, so this film was particularly special effects heavy. For those who haven't seen it, the appendage is, you know, a key character and requires someone very advanced. I actually think the head of the special effects department is someone that I've also worked with on a, on a different what? film. Yeah, Wait, really? Amber Mari and Jim Mahala. Yeah. yeah we, shout out to Amber amazing. and Jim. Absolutely a shout out to them. They did such a wildly impressive job on this and they also did the short film and so it was it was cool to see how that evolved also for them with a little bit more money and also if you if you watch appendage there's there's multiple iterations of it not to give anything too much away but it was it was definitely a great experience too just from a a budget perspective and figuring out how we could do that in a way that is is affordable and i think that it was a great lesson in terms of picking what's important to see on on screen and how long you're going to see it on screen and finding the ways to do that in a way that benefits the story the most so for example there were certain things that we wanted that we ended up trimming down because that just wasn't truly possible or you know something that i hadn't worked with before is so our appendage is completely you can operate it and you can hear its voice and so we could, we actually had a remote control to it that they were running the entire time so that it would move with the dialogue that was being said, uh, which was, was really, really wild. And of course, we changed the voice because the voice actually ended up, um, you know, voice is actually Emily Hampshire, who also plays one of the lead actors, which is a really fun tidbit from the film. Uh, but it was just so wild and cool to see how they operate that and what that looks like when you translate it to to film because uh, it's just not it's just not that done that often and I think it was also great to have the experience of doing something that's horror and something that's so practical because we're in this world of massive CGI and VFX which I also love um, and have done a lot of and I think that it's so incredible what we can do but it was something really cool and special about this project to be able to work with those elements. What was the decision making behind doing it practically versus in post? I think a lot of it, first of all, it comes from a lot of inspiration of older movies. And maybe it's something to the the extent of an argument. And I've heard Anna talk about this too, where it feels a little bit more emotionally grounded or, or grounded to be able to have something feel kind of real and maybe a little bit messy in some ways. And I think that that was really important to this. It's It's also an absurd concept when you really think about it on paper and so I think that that hopefully translated in a way to make it not seem like it's taking itself too seriously and it might have seemed a little bit more serious if it came off of VFX because the intention is always to of course treat the the topic seriously but her actual interactions with this appendage are not necessarily thought of in that way. Mm. Okay great so now that we've talked about the most recent project that people can check out currently on Hulu. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about the path that got you there. So you're a USC alum. Mm -hmm. After graduating USC and entering the big scary world of postgraduate life, what was your first step into securing that first job in producing? So I, uh, I was producing during most of college, but as soon as I got out, I knew immediately that I really wanted to work in the feature landscape. It was just something that was really important to me. And I think that there's so many different ways that you can go about building a career and there's certainly not one specific way to do it. And so while I was watching a lot of my friends go off to agencies or, or be assistants, which they have done super well, by the way, the path that I ended up deciding to take was just throwing myself into it and knowing that the best way I could do that is probably to do a very low budget horror film, which is exactly what I did. And so I shot an entire horror film just that summer right after graduating for no money, really, truly truly pennies. And I, it was a great experience because I actually ended up meeting many future collaborators mm. and that I've worked with on multiple features actually, even since then. And I also ended up 
setting myself up for future success with um, getting my job at Disney, which I'll talk about in a second. But after that, I spent about a year and a half working on other independent projects and did a few other features, um, one of which I met Jenna on, which is uh, one of the executives and EPs on Appendage. So it really all ends up coming full circle and doing a lot of commercials and music videos and After doing that for about a year and a half, maybe, I ended up getting offered a job to work at Disney's digital network, which is essentially, if you think about it as it's obviously a part of Disney and it's what they use to do a lot of marketing and digital content. uh, And it's now become a part of Disney Plus. But at the time I was working on it as a producer and working on a lot of advertising campaigns where big companies like, you know, Amazon or or Hanes or something like that will come to Disney and say, we want to have a a collaboration. What kind of video can we put together? And I would be one of the people that works on producing that. And I would, I can't even tell you how many videos I probably produced for them. Hundreds. Um, Mm. Yeah. And where did most of those live? Was it optimized for, because then you said now it's kind of part of Disney plus, but it sounds like there's probably some branded integrations as well. Yeah, there are definitely brand integrations that were, you know, part of their own individual platforms. And a lot of it was on social media. And then I know with Disney plus too, it also ended up streaming there as well. And I honestly, <laughs> there is so many different pieces of, of content from that, that time. And, but it was a really, really great experience for, for me because I have such an independent mindset naturally mm-hmm. to go and work for one of the the biggest corporations that exists out there because it really taught me the the system and how long it really really takes to get things done and it made me you know it, it kind of makes you marvel when we get anything done in Hollywood which is why every time any movie comes out I feel like I want to be at the back of the theater like clapping being like you did it you made something because <laughs> it's it always feels impressive to me just to just to get anything done so yeah after that I worked at Disney for a while which was a good experience for those reasons uh, but I felt like I I knew that I really really wanted to start my own company and that was going to be something that was really, really important to me as a next step at some point. And so I decided after a few years to go and pursue that and to work on these projects and features that I had been developing and thinking about beforehand and just kind of take the dive. And, you know, at that time it was took the dive thinking that maybe one of these projects was financed and then it always ends up taking a little bit longer to really, really get it there. But that's what I did next. Mm. And so... Before we go on to talking about your company, Fever Dream Studios, for someone who's listening, who's just starting out, maybe just graduating from USC, how did you end up landing those first few jobs and features? And how are you making it work uh, pursuing the dream when it's it's such a financial risk up front? Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really great question. I mean, I, I came to USC with a, a, a shoe that was duct taped. So I, I definitely spent a lot of my time at USC even starting to work on jobs, which I would first of all, highly recommend if you have the the opportunity, I work on as many projects as you possibly can during college so that you're not kind of starting from scratch as soon as you get out. I would highly recommend that. Even if it's things that aren't paid to begin with, it, it becomes paid eventually over time. And, you know, you don't want to be doing things that are unpaid for much longer after you, you graduate. And I, I know that I certainly couldn't. Oh man, that those for that first year or so, I think that I I spent a lot of time eating Subway sandwiches and saying this can be my whole day, um, just because it was a, a great deal. I think that there was like it was like five dollars or something just for the beginning of time, just because that's kind of what you have to do uh, if you're out here and taking a, a gamble on yourself. Uh, but I would say that it's one of the best things that you can do is take a take a risk on yourself, right? That's what a lot of a lot of people say and it's not led me wrong so far. So I think, you know, take a take a gamble on yourself, but you set yourself up for the best success that you can so that you're not just <laughs> saying that and you can back it up by hopefully meeting a lot of people, making sure that you have multiple feelers out in there. I, you know, I, I said that I did that first feature before I did that. I had a big project that was supposed to last that entire summer. And after working on it in prep for a month, it completely fell through. Mm. And so you just don't ever know what's going to happen. And that happens still. I, I have an entire folder of projects that don't happen and they could be for so many reasons, you know? So I would say in terms of getting that 
that first feature together. It's there's so many different ways that you can do it. And I think that people are always asking for a magic answer in terms of financing. And there just really, really isn't one. I think that, you know, be be smart and be strategic and figure out situations where multiple people can benefit from them because you're not going to you're not going to fully get to where you want to be and you might not even feel good about it if you're trying to just move yourself up but not be not think about the people that are around you I think that my career is so much an example of that so far and how the same people surround you at many different times and you know how many like I don't how many years have we known each other right over 10 at this point right and so it just it just ends up being the case that you might go and live somewhere else as as you know as you've done (laughs) you might you you might go like and as many people I know have done I've gone and done many different travels on different projects and you just don't really know when people are gonna come back to you so I think that that is is really really important so it's not always the most straightforward answer but I think that I would just say keep your options open and also be kind of humble and know what's really truly important to you to keep because you might not have an opportunity given to you exactly the same way as you're imagining it but that doesn't mean that it's not an opportunity and it doesn't mean that you know doing a commercial doesn't teach you something that you're going to be really grateful for later when you do a film or or vice versa so you just don't really know Mm. where it's going to come from okay I definitely can think of a lot of practical examples even in my own life of what you're talking about I think anyone who's spent a couple years working in the industry can definitely think of how that applies but I'm curious do you have any practical examples of what you're saying like what are you thinking Mm. of when you are making these recommendations Mm. which which part specifically well I guess we can start with the most recent one you know you said any opportunity you don't know how it's going to pay off maybe in either contact or something that you learned what's an example of a time that was true for you yeah totally I mean gosh there's so many I guess like you know the even that first feature that I did I don't think that it was it was very very low budget and it was something that I didn't I didn't know the people I was maybe I was so new to it I didn't know how that was going to pay off I think I was doing it because I I knew that I needed to get a feature credit and I you know and then I had a a great conversation with some of the people that were involved uh, which always helps everything but I don't think that I thought that it was going to lead to you know meeting meeting the writer who I ended up working on a project that was the first one that I did with my production company and that was a big thing and so you just don't really know what's going to come from things in in that way or I guess it's I guess I mean it's mostly in terms of the people that you meet you know because that is one of the most important things to me not just in a connections way but you know we're hopefully in this to make it sustainable and to make it fun because we're making movies after all and I feel like trying to keep that headspace has made it much more um rewarding and enjoyable Mm. hopefully for people that aren't just me what have you learned in those experiences with keeping relationships about the soft skills with you know maybe some big personalities Mm. people that work differently than you do or maybe have different priorities there's obviously the hard skills of knowing how to set up a budget how to deal with the legalities of a project but there's also a whole set of soft skills that i'm sure you've had to develop dealing with different types of people what were some of the the strategies that you learned through those experiences i feel like i've learned to try to just pay attention to who that specific person is in every circumstance. More often than not, everyone has a very genuine reason for doing what they want to do. And I think that it's funny. I know someone who's a middle school teacher and she has this really uncanny ability to just figure out exactly what someone's good at. And I, I think about that a lot in terms of when you look at all of your collaborators and, you know, hopefully talk about it with them too. It's like, what is everyone here really good at? Because we can be good at many, many different things, but there's certain things that come really naturally to all of us. And so I, I know that there's there's many ways I could take the question that you're saying. And of course, there are situations that are much more difficult. But I think that whether it be the difficult ones or the leadership positive ones, even I think that it, it's really, really important to look at what people are actually good at. And then what's also important to them, because if you can understand both of those things, it's going to make your job of navigating and working together much better. And and then hopefully, too, like hopefully after you do, everyone does a project once with someone who maybe doesn't have the attitude that they're they're wanting or used to. But I think that hopefully, hopefully we can limit those experiences to just one and learn from them or have, you know, if it's 
something a little bit less bad or less difficult, have a conversation with someone too, because sometimes people don't even realize. And I think that, you know, everyone wants to be important and to feel valued. And I, I do think that that is important in a collaborative medium. So I would just say, try to try to recognize that as much as we can. Mm. Okay. So then you went on to become a business owner of Fever Dream Studios. What was it that made that so important to you to own your own company? And how did you come up with the name Fever Dream? Yeah, I think that, I think it was really important to me just to be able to put something out there that I felt was really genuine to the type of art that I want to create and the type of artist that I want to empower. And so while there's so many companies that do that so, so well, it just felt like something that I, I also wanted to be a part of and to try to have some space for that as well. And, you know, with, with fever dream, it's something I, you know, I thought about the name for a while and I think that I eventually landed on fever dream because it very perfectly encapsulated the type of movies that I wanted to make and maybe the feeling that I was trying to go for. And, uh, which it could be taken in many different ways because obviously people have fever dreams and they come out of it and they're sweating and they're like, oh God. Um, but for me, there was something about movies that I've watched that really felt like I was thrown into a landscape that maybe didn't fully make sense, but it, and it was a little bit darker maybe and a little bit grittier and I wasn't really afraid to go and talk about dark topics, but it wasn't doing them in a way that necessarily felt so incredibly heavy handed. There was some Mm. kind of dreamlike quality to them or something about them that feels a little bit more surreal because I love surreal art. And so for me, that was that was what excited me about the title. Mm. And then you had two projects after you took that risk on yourself. You had two projects greenlit the same day. Yes, I did, which was really wild because I don't think that happens that often. I had to, I had to pull over um, with, I was with my writing partner and often collaborator, Mercedes Bryce Morgan, and we were driving and we literally pulled over and sat in a field for a second. It was, it was during the pandemic too. So we, it was, you know, I, I can't remember. It was a few months into it. And so we hadn't really gone outside much and they both got greenlit. Uh, they were both movies that we shot during the pandemic. And it was just a truly surreal experience to get those two calls back to back and say, this is what your next you know, year and a half is or longer because obviously we had been developing them for years. And I feel like every movie you work on for at a minimum three to five years. So kind of like a, a child. <laughs> So what were those two films and what was that process like of developing them? What were the things that were the final factors to get them greenlit? Who were you attaching? All of the above. Yeah. So Fixation uh, was the first one that we shot. We shot it in Canada. It's a psychological thriller that follows a young woman who wakes up in an unknown institution and starts to question why she's there and without giving anything away it kind of becomes uh you know going down the rabbit hole experience of her reliving some of her most formative experiences in a very surreal way and anything else would kind of give more of it away but that premiered at tiff leaping forward but we we got that one greenlit and that was completely independent which is was a wild experience just because it's kind of everyone's happiest day when someone says we want to finance art. And so that was something that, again, I had worked on developing with with Mercedes and with the writer, Will. And we had been developing for over a year together, I think maybe two years before it actually got to that point. And it was someone we got two of the other producers, Jordan Hayes and Max Toplin, were responsible for finding the financing for that. Um, it's someone they, we had sent them the project and they got really, really excited about it. And actually it was something that because the pandemic happened, ended up getting financed because they were going and trying to make another movie that they ended up not making because of COVID restrictions. Mm. And so they said, well, what are we going to shoot in the next few months? And called us up and said, well, do you guys want to be in Canada in a month? 
We're like, absolutely, we want to be in Canada in a month. And so that was the first one, I which we shot all during a pandemic. Yeah, well, what was it about this other project that got postponed and COVID restrictions that wasn't applicable to fixation? Oh, it's because they were shooting all with actors that were above 80, I believe. And so, and uh, they, they're also local to Canada. They were shooting in another country. And so it just wasn't the right project for that timeline. Um, but but ours ours was luckily, and so I well, I'm not sure if they've done that film, but I hope they did. I hope that came up next for them. Uh, but yeah, so they were able to greenlight that one, which was really exciting. Yeah, and fixation was just an incredible experience because we were shooting it in Canada, which is my first time shooting out of the country, and we were also shooting it during the height of the pandemic, and so we had a crew of casting crew of over a hundred people that we had to quarantine in this one hotel in uh, Sudbury, which is a, a small town that's, um, you know, outside of Toronto by a few hours. And so we quarantined over a hundred people and we all just kind of almost summer camp kind of style lived in this hotel and, you know, only saw the staff and each other uh, who quickly became our friends. And so it was it was a surreal experience to make a horror film also stuck in a big hotel in the middle of a pandemic. But I think that it there's that fever dream energy just really, really coming into it. And we, you know, we shot it in this uh, hospital that was about to be turned into condos and didn't actually, it was in the process, but the pandemic paused it. So we were really, really fortunate to get this crazy location and actually be able to build all of our sets out of this hospital as if it was a soundstage, which was quite a feat to do because it was also really, really cold there. Mm. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, our whole, our whole crew was, just truly, truly amazing on that. And it was really great to be able to work on something that was so, so surreal. And everyone was excited about doing that. And so that whole process was great. And like, it, like I mentioned earlier, it was able to premiere at TIFF uh, and is still finishing up its festival circuit now. So I'm really excited to see where that lands. Yeah, let's talk about the TIFF premiere, because I know on episode one with Brian Tang on episode two, Kristen Mancasio, we talked about kind of South by the different methods of getting in, getting a deadline extension, what it's like as an alum. How was that for your experience with TIFF? How much communication was there with the festival before the submission? There was some communication. I mean, it's also, uh, it's a festival that's in Canada. And so I think that that maybe, I wouldn't say helped, but it was made it a little feel a little bit closer to home, I think, for the other producers involved as well. And there wasn't that much communication, honestly, uh, beforehand. But it was something where we definitely weren't exactly sure where it was going to premiere. We reached out to multiple festivals, uh, but TIP was definitely a fantastic spot for it. Got a bucket I, list for you, right? So a bucket <laughs> list item for you. You know what? I'll take all the bucket lists. <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, that festival was so exciting, particularly because it was my, my first time going and the films that I saw there, I just really loved. And it's always so exciting to be able to see movies that inspire you and to think, wow, this is so great that this gets to be surrounded by other art like this and so the the festival premiere of it was awesome i really yeah i was really grateful for the experience mm. so that was the first film the second film spoonful of sugar yes the second sp film was called spoonful of sugar and it's something that me and mercedes were also developing with the writer uh leah saint marie who is such a great collaborator and We'd been developing it for, I think, maybe two years as well. We actually came across it because Leah was part of some newsletter that we both followed. And I, Mercedes was also sent it by her agent and I had flagged it because I thought the log line sounded cool. And I thought, I, I this sounds like something I'm really going to like. And within a month, we were watching you know, the, the Kubrick slow Lita together and thinking, wow, we're going to make movies for a really, really long time. And so the process for making, getting that greenlit was really also just sharing it with um, the company, the other company that's part of it. In addition to AMC Shutter, which is Vanishing Angle, which Matt Miller and Natalie Metzger are just fantastic producers. And it was, it was exciting to produce alongside them because their company had been doing 
so many great indies, a lot of which are at Sundance or South by for a long time. And Mercedes had worked with them before as well. And so we sent them the script and they, they shared it with Shudder and Shudder really, really liked it. And was it was all just a matter of finding the right time to slate it in for. And as soon as they said, yes, it's going to go, we thought, okay, well, we're going to Canada right now, but like right after that, let's, let's do it. And so that was, that was a really great process as well, just because I, you know, I'm such a huge horror fan and Shudder so has that audience and really, really gets the pulse of what they, they want to see. And there's nothing quite like horror fans or genre filmmaker fans, because they really, really bring it when it comes to the energy and the excitement and the fandom and all of these things. And so it was just cool to be able to work on something with that platform that already has that, that audience. And they were just so supportive too of the whole, the whole creative team and really uplifting what we were going for. So great partners. That's also. Yes. Yes. It's uh, yeah. And great partners again, I think I'm saying it so many times, but it's just because it really is one of the most refreshing things whenever you find that because mm-hmm. I don't think that it's it's definitely not something that I take for granted definitely yeah so in between the features you occasionally do other projects I know you have a saying about this that may or may not relate to food <laughs> I, <laughs> Rebecca's saying this because I said this earlier <laughs> And quickly um, was trying to figure out what I actually meant by it. But I, I think I have the answer. Yes, I, you know, I think that commercials and music videos are kind of the wasabi to my sushi. <laughs> <laughs> Which if, if, we, if we let the listener ponder for just a moment before you launch sure, into your explanation, sure, sure, sure. that could mean several different things. Please DM me what you think it means. <laughs> um, but I, I think that what I what I meant by it um, upon thinking about my own words is just that I I think so much of my time is taken up by features, which I absolutely love. But I still I still love doing commercials and music videos and projects like that, not only because, again, I've also made my own list of collaborators that I like working with. Mm. I love to be able to have opportunities to get to see them because, you know, once you graduate college and at this point living in L.A. for so many years, it's, you need an excuse to see people sometimes. And I just like it because it feels like, I don't know, like a little it's a short little stop. It's a little energy burst. And it's nice to be able to get something fast done and do it with people that you like um, in between things just because it takes so long for features to happen. And yeah, I think that's what I meant by it. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's almost a quicker payoff for the investment of working on prep for something. Yeah, and it's just like uh, I think I just like the f- the fast energy of it. It's the not spice, even. It, if I you like will. this. Yes, absolutely. I like the wasabi. <laughs> okay, so going back to kind of your initial interests in film, we've talked about that you attended USC. When did that interest start for you in the film and TV industry, and? What was your thought process like in applying to formal education training for film? So I really wanted to write novels when I was younger and I quickly consulted all of the other, uh, you know, 12 year olds that I knew and I, no one was reading anything. So I realized that I needed to find an art form that people would actually engage with, which led me really, really quickly to movies. I think my, my dad was a photographer, so I got into the idea of you know, not having to choose which art medium I could fall into, but the idea that film is just a marriage of all of them. And so that's what got me into it. And in terms of the formal education aspect of it, I, you know, I went to USC because that was what I was, you know, inspired and told to to go after and do. And I, I think that there's a lot of benefits in terms of it. I mean, everything that I'm talking about here is all about the collaborators that I've met at USC. I mean, I met you at USC and there's so many people that I've gotten jobs from and people that I've given jobs to. And that's just kind of the, the way that it works there. But I, I definitely think that there's a lot of merit to just going out and doing things too, uh, because there's not really one way that you're going to learn film. You know, it's not something that's necessarily, I think that you can be intuitive in terms of 
how you handle yourself in film, but the actual process of learning how to make a movie isn't necessarily something that you can write down or learn from a book. Mm. So USD was not the only school that you were considering when you decided to take that step. No, I, um, well, I really wanted to go to NYU, uh, which I always tell the story I did get into, but I uh, ended up wanting to go to USC instead just because I wanted the opportunity to get further away and from my hometown and also which was I am a whole collection of the east coast here so it's New York New Jersey Massachusetts and I you know I I love the east coast so much but I think that for me I just wanted to go and do something else and do something different and from everything that I they saw and read it felt like that was where the pulse of the industry was at that point. And, you know, it still, still is now, but obviously now I know that there's so much that comes out of New York as well, but I, I really wanted that. And I think that I also wanted to have a community because so much of what I had heard from other people that went to school in New York is that it, it was easy to, to be isolated, which was the opposite of what I was looking for mm. um, when it came to doing this career. Cause I, you know, I like working with people all the time. Um, I, I want to go spend, you know, 12 to 14 hour days with people. <laughs> and so that really worked out well for me. Yeah. You were definitely cut out for this career. If yeah, that is you. the case, <laughs> what collaborators did you meet along the way and who do you still work with? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think that there's quite a few of them, uh, but probably the one of the biggest ones is uh, Mercedes Bryce Morgan, who's my writing partner and also my life partner. And so uh, it was a really good group project for me because <laughs> we to to back it up, we got put together in a 310 group, which we we both know, which is for anyone who doesn't know, is just kind of a junior thesis film where everyone rotates and does different jobs and they put three people together, both of which actually are two of the closest people in my life because the other person is Sonia Guggenheim, who also works in film and is in the UK. And I have, you know, is my forever excuse to get to go to London. And so, yeah, I don't know. USC really did a great job of introducing me to people that I like forever. Like also you. <laughs> oh, appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. Purple, <laughs> Nina Sadowski. Oh yeah. Episode four of this I, podcast. I will a hundred percent. I'll say Nina Sadowski's name from the mountaintops. Mm. Yeah. We have that in common. Big fans <laughs> of Nina. Yeah. <laughs> in this house. And we're currently in Katrina's house. So I can say that. Yes, you can. Uh, <laughs> how has your living situation impacted your creativity? You know, I think I've lived in so many apartments in LA I'm one of the only people I know that likes to move. Um, so I think just cause I like different places to be in changes of pace. Um, I want a new grocery store. So it's just, I'm like, I've been to every Trader Joe's so many times um, and Whole Foods probably. So you say different, so when you say different grocery store, you mean you want Trader Joe's, but you just want it to be a different nightmare parking lot. I, yeah, I just, you know what it is, is I want to be able to walk everywhere. I, I want to live in LA and be stubbornly in New York is truly what it is, which makes sense because I live now, um, you know, downtown in a loft. And so I, I love, I mean, which I love, I think that I, I always am a big fan of lots of windows and lots of light. And my, my, my current apartment is very, as you can see, is very rear window in a way where you can kind of, I just see my neighbors all the time, which I know could sound um, in a certain way, but I just like it because it reminds me that we have neighbors mm. in Los Angeles. And I, I find that always inspiring just to be able to really be surrounded by by people um and so that's something that i've loved specifically about living in the more specifically city aspects of los angeles but i've i mean i've lived in so many different places i love k-town i've lived in we ho and i've lived i can't even remember all of them but i've lived in a lot of places definitely yeah i mean that's kind of a nice part about la i guess as well as you can really we were just talking about this earlier, that each neighborhood is such a different experience, sometimes even culturally. Okay, before we get into our time capsule segment, were there moments that you considered leaving the industry for something else? And if there were, what kept you persevering? It's a great question. I think the answer is yes and then no really quickly. Just because I think that there's, I don't know, there's there's so many challenges to be being able to work in this this career and also just this, this landscape. And I think that there's, there's ways that it can be really disheartening at times. Um, 
for me, it's, I just can't imagine doing anything else really. I, I love it so, so dearly. And I, you know, I think that I, if I were to go and do something differently, it would be a, it'd be a whole other career. I'd go back to school or something. I, I can't really imagine. I guess that's interesting. An alternate universe where there is no film industry, what would Katrina be doing? Oh man. I would probably, okay, if National Geographic would pay me to go and take photos in different different parts of the world and, and travel, everyone wants to get paid to travel. Um, but I I would love that. I, or, or maybe being, I don't know, like a therapist or a professor uh, of psychology in some university, I could, I could see myself doing, uh, you know, film as some form of therapy probably. Connecting with people. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, so now we'll get on to our time capsule segment to freeze this moment in time and also make some predictions for the future. I want you to predict my future. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't want to answer any questions. Clairvoyant. I just. Buoyant. I just. Yeah. I want to see what Rebecca thinks I'm doing in ten years. Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, how many Oscars? You want an odd or even number or uh, or accolades? I see you extremely happy. I see you living three apartments down the road and loving them <laughs> even more than the current one. And I see you especially on your third appearance on this podcast well okay there we go <laughs> so, thank you <laughs> but now it's just superfluous to predict it again but we'll still do it um, okay great <laughs> okay we'll actually start with the past if you could write a letter to yourself 10 years ago what would you say i probably couldn't read my handwriting so i would say <laughs> um, but i you know i think that gosh i think there's so many different lessons to to be learned but one that i've been thinking about more so over the last few years is just that success is so not linear. I think that there's, we, th- we think of steps in so many ways and in all aspects, you know, you think about it for your career, you think about it in, in life. And I think that that can be very detrimental and oftentimes is not, not true. And I think that the biggest reason that it's not true is because as you, as you get older, as you progress in any way, not only do things go in ways that you weren't expecting, but also your definitions of success might change. And so for, for example, for me at some point, success might've been making a, a certain amount of money, or it might be working on a project that has a certain budget, or it might be getting creative control on a project or doing it through your own company or working with certain people and there's, or getting certain accolades, getting into certain festivals, getting on certain platforms. There's just a never ending list of mm. ways that you can keep defining your success and if you've reached it or not. And so I think that my biggest advice to my younger self, but also to anyone at that age or probably any age, honestly, is just know that you're going to constantly be changing what that is and that it's going to change in so many ways over time. And I think too about people, I mean, this hasn't happened to me specifically, but I know people that have gotten into huge festivals and their movie, you know, wins best of, you know, insert festival here, Sundance, Tribeca, whatever. And then they can't afford the ticket to go to a certain festival or they are told we want nothing more than to develop this for you. And then they get there and they prepare all the materials. And then it's like, no, actually we wanted a different version of this. And there's just so many ways that you can get to some point of success that you felt like you wanted or even making a lot of money or getting a budget. And then people say, I don't feel creatively fulfilled. And obviously you want to be able to be in a situation where you get all of those things and that might feel like the ultimate mark of success, but that just feels so unlikely to happen in that way. And even if you do, it's there's the different reception that it might get. And so I think that to me, it's been really, really helpful and informative to how I work now to be able to just try to figure out what the markers of success that I'm looking for in each project actually are and also being open to those changing Mm. Um, because you can't really you can't really you can't fully predict the future unfortunately you know (laughs) Rebecca tried to predict mine so we'll see we'll see we'll see I can check in in 10 years (laughs) on this podcast um but you know I I can't I don't have your powers to predict the future (laughs) and so I I think that having a certain amount of flexibility while still being really really steadfast to what's important to you about your goals and so instead of having a goal of saying, you know, I 
want this film to, I want this film to be on this specific platform or this specific festival. Instead it's saying, I really want my film to be seen by a lot of people or even more so, I want it to resonate with a certain community, right? So for me, there's sort of like, um, I don't want to spoil fixation, but it's about, it's about, uh, in so many ways, it's about a young woman just dealing with uh, trauma. And, you know, we, me and Mercedes had multiple people come up to us at different festivals and talk to us and share their personal stories. And to me, that's worth everything in the entire world. And so I think that, and maybe I wasn't going to say that I needed this specific person in, you know, Paris or in Goa, India to come up to me and say this thing. And I didn't know that, but I can know that I, I want it to resonate with people. And so we just don't know those specific ways that it's going to come through. And that's been big for me. Mm. So that was your advice for 10 years ago. Would that advice change if you were speaking to yourself five years ago? Oh man, I have to do math. (laughs) So it's 2023. So that would have been 2018. I think that I I would definitely still have the same advice because I think that knowing that success isn't linear is something that is impactful and helpful all of the time. Uh, I do think that if I went back to myself five years ago, I would probably I would probably say also that things don't happen on the same timeline as what you're expecting. So get ready to move with the flow, which I guess is very similar to what I what I already spoke about, but I just think it's so incredibly important because for anyone who's really, really driven, you have this idea of the the steps that you're gonna go through and how you're gonna get there. And I think that that's important to have that mindset, but not stick to it. And, you know, I think that the other thing that I was doing around five years ago is also just looking at different material and different scripts and figuring out what are the ways that you break break the mold of this and make that exciting and something that you can connect to and what are and how do you make it so that people still find that engaging and you're not falling too far into your your own kind of rabbit hole of existence um and so yeah i think that you know for example something that i i learned and talked about with my writing partner is there's always something at the eight minute mark in really, really good movies where you learn a little bit more about the world and that's what happens before the inciting incident. And that's something that I feel like I wasn't thinking about or having act one goals. And all of this really just came from getting to the point where I've done so many different features and I've been in so many editing rooms that you're learning, not just to write on the front end, but also <laughs> rewrite on the back end. And so taking those skills and bringing them to the front mm. has been really helpful. Mm. Also in the past, what was the biggest cultural difference between shooting a movie in the United States versus Canada? It's a great question. Well, I will say that I think that shooting a movie in any different location, it's so important to learn what the culture is there and to respect that and to make sure that your crew is balanced. So if you're bringing people from LA, it's really, really important to me. And it's something that I've learned progressively on every project to be able to have the right balance of people that are local and people that aren't just because you have the, that, that creates the best movie. It just always does. Every experience I've had has been because there's balance in those Mm. departments and in those ways, just because there are so many different ways of, of working. So for example, in LA, everyone's so incredibly fast paced right away. And, you know, they're working on weekends, they're working at nights, and there's other other cultures that aren't necessarily operating in the exact same way. And that doesn't mean that they're not getting things done. And so I think that it's paying attention to to that. And Canada, everyone's so nice in Canada, everyone. <laughs> um, and not that I'm not used to nice people, but I think that it was it was a little surprising and uh, it brought a nice energy to it. Mm. Yeah. And so some of those cultural differences like pace aren't even country specific. Sometimes they yeah. can be regional. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I think, again, it's just about like I it's it's super important to me. I'll, I'll always have someone from production and then it's really every department should have people that are, are higher up that are also from the local culture. And that's always been that's something that's been really important to me. And every time the film that I'm working on does that, we have better success. Mm. Okay, getting into the present, and these can be kind of rapid fire. What is your favorite song right now? 
I've been on a David Bowie kick again recently. And so I keep listening to Life on Mars on repeat. And I mean, it's just a it's a great song, but it's also makes me think. (laughs) What is your favorite show right now? Probably Sex Education. (laughs) What is the best movie you've seen in the last year? That is too hard to answer, Rebecca. Um, I would say probably I love Triangle of Sadness. Uh, huge fan of that director. And uh, recently I just saw Talk to Me and I thought that that was super great. What food or drink item are you currently obsessed with? I'm obsessed with this place in Pasadena called Paper Rice, which is spring rolls that you make yourself kind of like kava or sweet green. Huge mm. recommend. <laughs> what was the most surprising thing from your recent trip to Costa Rica? <laughs> I, uh, so I went to, to Costa Rica to, you know, write for myself and with my writing partner during, um, during the strike over the course of the summer. And we, we found uh, an Airbnb that was up in the middle, like in this mountain that we couldn't even reach. It took an hour to drive up this mountain. There's nothing else there. And we had to leave at 4am the next morning to get to the next place and do the next thing. And uh, we had spent the whole day before riding and we got in the car and we're trying to go down this mountain that again, we have no cell service. It's the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, all of these cows come out into the road and they just won't leave. And so we have maybe eight cows and all of the cows in Costa Rica, most of them are very, um, they're all white and gone. they like, seem like they're from a horror movie. I have these images that will scare you to your core um, <laughs> of these cows that wouldn't leave. And so we ended up actually going down the entire mountain with the cows in front of us at their own pace, uh, which I wouldn't say is, that's not cultural at all, um, but it was something that was shocking. <laughs> Who would be dream collaborators for you? There are so many. I I would say, you know, I've always been a huge fan of Yorgos Lanthimos' work and Martin McDonough. I huge fan of both of them. Or even more recently, Alma Selgman. I just really, really love tracking her career. So very different people, but all people that I admire. What are your current interests or hobbies outside of work? I should specify, you know. I was going to say, I feel like I just work Rebecca, but no, I, um, I've been taking, uh, photographs. I have a film camera and so I've been getting really into that. And I also got scuba certified last year. And so that's been, that's been great whenever I have the time to, you know, unplug long enough to be underwater. (laughs) Who are your pets? I'm currently fighting with one over the cord right now on the microphone i know i know sir keeps really approaching you and <laughs> and all the times that you don't want to be uh so my cat I, I just spoiled it my cat's name is sir he's an orange cat i named him sir because i wanted to be able to you know say excuse me sir excuse me uh from afar and uh, the name really really suits him Def- i can confirm yes what are your tattoos i only have one tattoo and that i share with mercedes that we both got after we wrapped fixation and it's uh it's essentially it's actually a symbol that we we added our own thing onto but it's the web of weird which essentially means that all of our past present and future are are kind of interconnected in some way and it was a t- it was actually a symbol that we took from the movie and so that was that was one of the reasons that we did that mm. Okay, moving on to the future. Five years from now, where do you imagine you will be living? I think I'm going to be living in LA, probably not with a house, given how the market is, but and also given the fact that I have such a specific house that I that I need to have, um, but probably still LA. Specific house is the trailer in the Hollywood Hills. And you know what? Honestly, though, that would be so great. Rebecca's referring to the idea that I, I thought it would be funny to get uh, a plot of land in the Hollywood Hills and put a a trailer on it and turn it into a museum. (laughs) Um, I don't know about that, but I know I want to have, have you ever seen Dr. Seuss's house? Uh, No, I didn't know he had a house. It's um, fantastic. Everyone should Google it. But the idea would be that it's, it's incredibly 
tall and every room is different aesthetically. Mm-hmm. So they're all different art forms. Is this the actual author's house? I That, that was my take on his house. Uh, oh, yes. oh okay, yeah. okay. Five years from now, is there anything you hope will have been invented? That is too good of a question. I want to steal someone else's answer. Um, so, okay, I have a practical and a probably not practical answer, but I hope that someone proves me wrong. I kind of wish that, you know, some form of time travel or extension of time is created kind of like Hermione's thing in the third Harry Potter movie. The time turner. Yes, exactly. And also of greater importance to clarify, I um something to help us with climate change and would be great. So you could work in tandem, you know? You know what? I I hope that inspires someone. <laughs> The year is 2028. What are PJ and Josie doing in Bottoms 3? Bottoms 3? I think, um, I, I hope that they make a Bottoms 4, 5, and 10. I, I think that they are wearing all new fashion that we need to watch and probably telling us how we're currently fucking up how we're talking about people. <laughs> The year is 2028. What is the appendage from the film up to? Since it just is reflecting all of our inner thoughts, probably still terrorizing everyone. But hopefully we've gotten to the place where uh, we, you know, have had enough therapy that we maybe have smaller appendages. The year is 2028. What is the latest addition to your art collection on your walls? Oh my God, there's going to be, I swear to you, Rebecca, by the end of all of this, there won't be a single white wall. I think I not, I'm not going to answer on the walls. I, I'm sure there will be something, but I think that I want statues. Mm. What kind of statues? I, I want statues from, hmm, this is too good of a question. Well, I mean, you, you know, now you have the time turner. You can go back a little bit, get a pristine statue from any era. You know, I think I want, I think I want statues of art that people wouldn't necessarily immediately cons- consider art. I think, mm. or, or in crazy places, like I, you know, I want chairs hanging from the ceiling, which I know sounds weird. I've brought that up multiple times to uh, my partner who I live with and they don't think it's the best idea. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll be looking out for that in 2028. I hope to see that the next time that you're on the podcast, we can sit under those chairs and do the next part of the interview. Thank you so much for coming on to do this episode. Where can people keep up with you online and also see the films? Yeah. So, I mean, Appendage is on Hulu, um, streaming as of this week. And then Spoonful of Sugar you can find on AMC Shutter. And uh, there's, there's a lot of other things, but those are the two that I would start with. And in terms of finding me, I just am under my name, Katrina Kudlick on Instagram, which would probably be the best place to reach out to me uh, or under Fever Dream Studios, which is also on Instagram. So that's K-A-T-R-I-N-A-K-U-D-L-I-C-K and Fever Dream Studios. Um, Go give Katrina a follow. Thank you so much for sharing also with me. I think you provided so much valuable insight. I think a lot of what you said is so relatable. So thank you for sharing it today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Here is a recap of some takeaways from my conversation with Katrina. One, if you're in college, work on as many projects as you can so you're not starting from scratch when you get out. Two, take a gamble on yourself and set yourself up for the best success that you can by meeting a lot of people. Three, be strategic by figuring out how people around you can benefit as well from the next step you're trying to take. Four, You might not have an opportunity given to you exactly the way that you would imagine it, but that doesn't mean that it can't be an opportunity to teach you something that will be applicable to the projects of your dreams. Five, figuring out what someone is good at and what is important to him or her will help you build a good relationship. Six, success is not linear. Seven, in really good movies, there's often something at the eight minute mark when you learn something more about the world before the inciting incident. Eight, when shooting in another location, balance your crew between traveling crew and local hires. Respecting the local culture will add to your film. And nine, your definitions of success might change. Sometimes success can be as simple as resonating with a certain community. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of No Set Path. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate it and share it with a friend, especially if you can think of someone who might benefit from the knowledge that was shared here today. 
You can keep up with the podcast on all social platforms at No Set Path Show or on the website at www.nosetpathshow.com. Thanks so much for being part of this community and we'll talk to you soon.